Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 50 in our series of the first half of American history. This will be our final podcast as we wrap up, again, what was known of the American Civil War, and we begin to break in to this concept called Reconstruction. In this second half of world history, which as you can see from my website is a a separate link, I will begin with a further more in-depth discussion of Reconstruction as it impacts future American events from the 1860s and 70s onward. So in podcast number 49, we looked at the, in quite in depth, the assassination of President Lincoln. We saw what drove Booth, who just had an absolute hatred for the fact that Abraham Lincoln and the Union won the American Civil War. We saw why and how he could simply waltz up to the president's box seats and put a gun, a revolver right to Lincoln's skull and pull the trigger, which we discussed in that podcast. And then also that it was not a myth that legislation found on Lincoln's desk did outline for the creation of what became known as the Secret Service. Therefore, in this podcast, we're then going to look at this concept of what we call Reconstruction, a government program that Lincoln had thought about, had discussed, had outlined, but would never be able to bring to fruition. So with that assassination of our first American president, again, he's not the first to die in office. However, that is still an assassination that is studied by certain segments of Homeland Security, because to date, it is arguably the colossally worst type of assassination that this could ever affect this country. Please know I'm not in any way minimizing the assassinations of Garfield, McKinley, or John F. Kennedy, not at all. But all three of those assassins, Chalgus for Garfield, Charles Guiteau for, uh, excuse me, the other way around, Guiteau for Garfield, Charles Chalgus, who assassinated um, McKinley, and Lee Harvey Oswald, of course, who assassinated Kennedy. Those, it turns out, were lone assassins. I know roughly 50% of Americans believe in the conspiracy uh, conspiracy that about the Kennedy assassination that Lee Harvey Oswald was part of a larger network associated with fill in the blank depending upon what particular where the, the momentum is as to whether we think it was the mob, the government, Cuba, et cetera. Bottom line is Oswald was acting alone. He was an angry man who was acting alone, as was Chargas, as was Guiteau. Booth was not that. Yes, he was angry, just like those other future three assassins would be. But to date, we have never uncovered a plot to wipe out an entire presidential administration. It is part of the reason why, for example, 
David Bernhardt, the Secretary of the Interior under Donald Trump, was nowhere to be seen in the State of the Union address. Bernhardt was not what is called the designated survivor. The designated survivor has been a term coined because of that three-year series that ran with Kiefer Sutherland, that who he was a member of the cabinet, was told to stand down, was taken to an undisclosed location in case the ghost of Booth could revisit Washington, D.C. and wipe out the entire administration. Think about how much the State of the Union address truly could make Homeland Security and everybody in it overdose on Altoids and Gas-X and all these other ailments to cure uh, uh, nerves and uh, an upset stomach. Think about it. In one chamber of the United States Capitol, when the president delivers the State of the Union address, you have the president, of course, the vice president. You have the Speaker of the House, the President Pro Tem. You have all 535 members of the House plus nine justices in the United States Supreme Court. Think about, sadly, how much easier it would be than it was in Booth's day to wipe out an entire administration. Sadly, with all these noxious gases that can be released and through the water or released through the air, it truly is a night that should make America pause because truly the risk of what would happen if everybody in that building were killed. So in you can find out, it's easy to, to Google just the list of individuals who have been told that they will be viewing the president's uh, State of the Union address at a different location. You will not find somebody, however, for Biden's first State of the Union address in 2021, simply, of course, because of COVID restrictions. All right, so moving on now with Reconstruction. Right here as we end this uh, series of podcasts on the first half of world history, I'm only going to be just uh, over uh, a quick overview of the immediate results of Reconstruction. In the next podcast, which will be the first one in the second half of world history, that's where we're going to jump on the diving board and, and dive in a lot, a lot deeper. But please note that despite the fact that Lincoln was gone, Johnson actually shared quite a few common denominators with Adolf Hitler. Uh, Jesus, sorry, Adolf Hitler. That's good. Uh, I guess you can figure out which podcast I was recording before this one on the second half of world history. But Johnson had a lot in common with Abraham Lincoln. Even though Lincoln was gone, Lincoln's conciliatory approach to the South was Johnson's. Please note, in some cases, it was easier for Johnson to be understanding of the South or sympathetic than it was of Lincoln, <coughs> excuse me, because Lincoln was a Republican. A lot of people tend to forget Johnson was not a Republican. Johnson was a Democrat from the South. That was Lincoln's symbolic overture to the nation that elect me with my new vice president, my new running mate, who is not only not a Republican, he is not a Northerner. That's part of why Lincoln was able to waltz into a second term was because of the effectiveness of putting Johnson on the ticket. Unlike, again, his challenger, of course, was George McClellan. So again, Johnson, like Lincoln, took a conciliatory approach to the South immediately sought to restore property rights to almost all former Confederate citizens. Why do I say almost? Because the most prominent Confederate citizen wasn't going to get his land back because that land was once the Robert E. Lee estate is today's Arlington National Cemetery. 
There's no way Lee was going to get his land back in Northern Virginia. But to almost all other former Confederate citizens, their property rights would be restored. And therein would begin to uncover the real economic reality of what the future of America was going to look like in the South without slave labor. Remember, if you can picture in your head or if you study this in high school or grammar school, the vast size of these former slave plantations, these acres and acres, hundreds and thousands of acres of, of plantations that grew specific crops like soybean or corn or tobacco, cotton, you name it. So these Confederate citizens get all of that land back. Ladies and gentlemen, how are they going to continue to pay the mortgage if they haven't paid it off yet? I'm not trying to drum up sympathy here for the Confederate former slave owners, not at all. But but run with, with, with just bear with me a moment. If they haven't paid it off, how do they continue to pay the mortgage? If they have paid it off, how do they continue to pay for the property taxes on such a massive piece of property? You see, those massive plantations, number one, what do you imagine the condition of those plantations looked like if they had been abandoned for the last four years? Or what do you think they looked like if just one part of a battle between the Union and the Confederacy took place? Much of the land in the South was torn up to oblivion. Harbors in the southern states were destroyed. All of this would have to be rebuilt. The land would have to be restored. But for the individual property owners, how do you go about doing that? Because they're never going to be able to generate that kind of profit again. Remember, unlike the manufacturing and industrial north, in industry, an individual who owns a commodity, builds a commodity, they can may have a significant profit margin. They have different ways that they can protect their profit margin. They can buy cheaper raw materials. They can offer less colors, less different styles. There's a lot of ways that a manufacturing and industrialist can, tape, can tailor what they need to to preserve their profit margin. Southern plantation owners don't have that luxury. Their profit margin was razor thin. Oh, it was there, and many made the equivalent in 2021 dollars of millions. But again, that was based on a false pretense that humans could be enslaved against their will. So let's just take a quick scenario of a particular plantation owner that somehow was lucky enough to not only no longer, to not only uh, not have a battle take place on his or her plantation, their ground is perfectly in great shape. So they continue to grow their thousands of acres. But who's harvesting it? Who's planting the seeds? Who's working the soil? The labor now will have to be paid. And that's not going to happen. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. Financially, the southern plantation owners were in ruins even if their land was never touched. If they generated a profit margin from one or more people who were enslaved against their will, to now turn that into wage labor, forget the profit margin because that went right out the window. 
they would simply go bankrupt. So what happened now is that the southern plantation owners would have to sell off anywhere north of 90% of their former plantation to get it down to a sizable chunk of land that they and the family could work and hope to generate a harvest to generate an income. Okay? But how do you get rid of those back acres? You say, well, hey, land, land's always worth something. Not in this day and age, it isn't. Not immediately after the American Civil War, it isn't. What buyer do you have out there that's going to buy countless and countless millions of acres that can no longer be financed? There are no buyers. So what happens then to that land? It's confiscated by the banks, just the way your home or my home would be confiscated if we couldn't pay the mortgage. So the banks take over the land. The Confederate banks? No, they all went belly up. These are union banks. And this is where, with all of this surplus of land, began part of the program in the federal program of reconstruction called, quote, 40 acres and a mule to freed African Americans. Now to those former slaves, they would be given free of charge 40 acres of land to be able to use and one working animal to work the land. Beyond that and above that, was entirely up to them. But again, I'm not trying to evoke sympathy here. But can you imagine a landowner that might have only had 400 acres, let's say 500 acres, and all they could keep is 100. The 400 went into foreclosure. Those 400 would be divvied up into 10 different plots of land that a former slave now owns free and clear title in hand. Can you imagine if that former large plantation owner looking out from their back porch and sees 10 former slaves of his or hers that is now freed working on their own? Yes, many did continue to work for their former masters, but they were and should have been paid. But there again, how can they pay them if their ability to generate the crops simply isn't there. What I'm trying to paint out here, however, and I hope you are seeing connecting the dots, is this is what is going to skyrocket the animosity between white Southern Americans and black, now free, Southern Americans. And again, I'll go more in depth on that in the first podcast in the second half of American history. Now, however, excuse me, we need to see what about their actual status or standing in the United States of America? Well, first off, we need to free this former slave population. You might want to correct me and say, no, 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 Chris, the Emancipation Proclamation did that. No, 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 no. That was only a presidential executive order. That evaporated when President Lincoln dies. That's what presidents do. If they come in from the opposite party or opposite or not, executive orders expire with the president's term. Because of this, to free the slaves was going to require a significant change to America's existing document called the Constitution of the United States and its, up to that point, 12 amendments. 
The 13th Amendment would have ultimately be passed in December of 1865, that slavery was banned as an institution. Okay, so now they're free. Nope, that's going to take another three years. It would not be until the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868 that all freed African-Americans were now American citizens. <coughs> I'm sorry. And then finally, the 15th Amendment in 1870, which would give African-Americans the right to vote. This is partly why Reconstruction was deemed a failure as I draw this first half of American history to a close. You can make all those amendments you want. Amendments are ideas put in through ink onto parchment. But listeners, that idea is only as good as the parchment it's written on if it doesn't change the mindset of the people in which it is to rule. The Union forced the Confederacy to lay down their guns what the Union could not force was the Southerners to change their mindset any more, ladies and gentlemen, than the Northern mindset was that looked at that former slave population as beyond, truly beyond, second-class citizens. Because of this is part of the reason why I would like to read from an excerpt from Dr. Stephen Ambrose in which he, in his book called Nothing Like It, excuse me, To America, his other book, I'm sorry, was Nothing Like It in the World, but in his book, To America, where Stephen Ambrose reads to, in his own students, a situation that he found himself in as a result of being a student who was from Wisconsin studying at the University of Mississippi. I apologize. I said University of uh, Mississippi. It was at the University of Louisiana. And Dr. Stephen Ambrose, who is just one of America's, was one of America's most gifted historians as, as well as writers, uh, to give a quick background on Dr. Ambrose, he wrote a biography of quite a few people in the Lincoln administration. And Ambrose prided himself on staying politically neutral in laying out the facts as they were, whether they helped Democrats or whether they helped Republicans, it didn't matter. He laid out the facts as he knew them and tried to remain as politically neutral as possible. I have tried to mirror that in not only in my own writing as a columnist with the Akron Beacon Journal or in my blogs, but also as a public speaker, as a college professor. It, I take pride that I've had students take all six classes that I teach, and at the end of the sixth class could never be able to pinpoint me of whether I'm a Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. Oh, I certainly lean. Gosh, do I lean. But I don't feel a, it's my place to pontificate that when I have an audience in front of me, whether it be a reader or a student. 
Dr. Ambrose strived to do the same way, to be the same way. And I would think that rather than take my word for it, rather than take Dr. Ambrose's word for it, I ask you to maybe consider the word of a prominent American whose assistant called Dr. Ambrose and asked him to meet him in the lobby of a Washington DC hotel. And the assistant would not give his name, just that you're going to meet somebody that wants to, that wants to ask a favor of you. Ambrose was bewildered. He's like, what are you talking about? Who is this? Why would I show up? I ask you to please show up. You would be doing a great favor to a very important person. Ambrose, bewildered, it went back and forth after the call was over thinking, okay, was this a joke or not? But reluctantly, he shows up at the hotel. He goes into the lobby. He gets a cup of coffee. He's reading. He's not noticing that the people around him and other tables are being asked to please vacate the area. Finally, when it dawns on Ambrose that something's up, he raises his head and he starts to look around. And can you imagine the look on his face when America's 34th American president, Dwight David Eisenhower, is brought into the room, escorted by the United States Secret Service, and the president sits down across from him. It was a very short meeting. All Ambrose was asked by President Eisenhower, who had now left office, Kennedy was in office now, is would you please write my memoirs, or go through my memoirs and write my biography? Would you do a biography of my warriors and a biography of my presidency? Of course, Ambrose asked two, a two-word question, why me? And Eisenhower looked Ambrose right in the eyes and said, because I've read your other biographies and you're fair. And that's all I ask. Tell the reader about my military experiences, about D-Day, about the my period after I came back from the war. And as my records become available from the, my presidency, please review those as well. And all I ask is that you tell the truth as you see it. It says as much about the president as it does about Dr. Ambrose. So what he wrote here in his book called To America, again, I have no doubt in my mind that what I'm about to share with you really happened. I read this in all of my classes, both in the first half and second half of American history, because it is so poignant, it is so telling. Despite how difficult it is for me to say the words, it, it will be as difficult to, it, just for you to actually listen to it. But I'm going to read what is here, not what I wish was here. It starts on page two seven, excuse me, page two sixteen, and the book again is called To America. In 1957, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin and went to Louisiana State University to get my MA degree studying under T. Harry Williams. In the summer of that year, my wife Judy and I got an apartment in Baton Rouge and I got a job on the west bank of the river as a teamster working on the construction of a Dow chemical plant nearby. One afternoon, walking to the parking lot, I was talking sports with a coworker, a guy about my age. I had learned that Southerners were nuts about sports and it was a safe subject to discuss, heck, even argue about. As we were comparing the Southeastern Conference with the Big Ten, we walked past a car that had an American flag tied to the radio antenna. 
Nigger, he spat out. How could you possibly know that? I asked with astonishment. Down here, we white guys fly the Confederate flag. Only the niggers put the stars and stripes on their cars. Wait a minute, I blurted out. That's our flag, all of us. Not down here, he said. He then gave me a short lecture on race and its position in the South and ended up exclaiming, I can kill a nigger any time I want to. End quote. I protested vehemently. He replied that there had never been a white person convicted of killing a nigger in Louisiana and never would be. I thought that was a terrible way to grow up, thinking you had a right to murder. And that ends what I was reading on page 216. And sadly, that is the note on which I end this 51 parts or segments or episodes of podcasts on the first half of American history. Ladies and gentlemen, the North forced the South to lay down their weapons, but they did not force them to change their minds. And while you may think that I'm vilifying the South and only that type of backwards thinking, of course not. Because the prevalent mindset that the Southerners had towards Black people was just as much in common in most places in the North. For that reason, Reconstruction would, by and large, be considered an outright failure. Organization like the Freedmen's Bureau that I'll discuss in the next podcast, the first one on the second half of American history, a government program that was, wow, such a wonderful organization to help newly freed African Americans learn how to read and write, learn how to understand money, learn how to get a job, interview skills, on and on. The organization had a lot of merit, but it didn't last. It was a government program that didn't last. Why couldn't an organization like the Freedmen's Bureau, how and why couldn't that exist for newly freed millions of Americans who need all types of assistance? Well, do you really think I'm going to give you the answer to that? Rather, I encourage you to continue on with me as we move along in our discussions of American history in what will now be the second part or American History 2 that we'll start with in the next podcast. Thank you again for listening, especially if you've been listening for my very first podcast where we talked about the idea of discovery of America. We have brought this all to the point where America is now an independent. They have torn themselves in half to the astonishing count of 623,000 dead. But we are unified once again. But what does unity mean? And why did that former line that separates the North from the South, why did it seem to continue even if long after the Civil War dead were long buried? So thank you again for listening. Have a great week.